They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where, indeed... Science Rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, the number to call is 470-ASK-BILL. That's 470-275-2455. That's 470-ASK-BILL. Now, to find out when to call, check me out on one of your electric internet machines and send us your questions and comments to askbillnye.com. And I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Hello, Bill. You know, I'm very excited to see that we have right here in the studio another great science communicator and someone I had the pleasure of working with many years ago uh, in the early days of his show, Scientific American Frontiers. You can't be serious. I am serious. We are joined today by the founder of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, none other than... Alan Alda himself, welcome to Science Rules, Ooh, Alan. What a great drum roll. You did that with your own <laughs> fingers. I love that. Manually, the old-fashioned yeah. way. Money Thank you. Is no Thank you for having here. me here. It's so good to see you. Now, you started out as an actor, yes? I'm finishing up that way, too. <laughs> uh, but you wanted to be a science communicator. Well, I found out that I could do it. I, I was always interested in science, even as a kid. I was an amateur inventor. I invented... Uh, Six-way can opener. What's Wait, what is a six-way can <laughs> What's opener? What's the difference between that and a one-way? <laughs> well, it could open things six ways. It kind of had to because the first five didn't work so well. But, <laughs> so but, did you open a lot of cans? I'll tell you what I actually invented when I was 10 that w was useful. It was a lazy Susan for a refrigerator so you wouldn't have to reach past things in the back of the refrigerator. Just roll the wheel around. And it must have been a good idea because a refrigerator company came out with the same thing about a year later. So uh, did your mother appreciate your... No, no, nobody did because they stopped selling the refrigerator Lazy Susan. No, no, I mean because, when well, you were 10. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they, they encouraged me. 
And but look, but you're the, fine. The, they didn't. The, the refrigerator people stopped making it because I think ketchup bottles were flying around the yeah. kitchen all over America. It needs a it needs a rim, an edge, a uh, capturing. Some, some, well, I didn't think of rims then. Mm. But so they, I was, I got a letter asking me if I wanted to host Scientific American Frontiers, and I was so interested in science. I said, I'd love to do it if I can actually interview them and not just say, here they come now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they took a chance and, and we did. And, and, uh, by Who's the time, they? Public Broadcasting. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Graham Chedd and uh, uh, his partner, uh, John, were uh, looking for a host. And it was on public broadcasting at PBS. Yeah. I spent some time on PBS. So uh, yeah. why – okay – you were interested in science as a kid, but you wanted to interview the people on the frontiers of science after they asked you to. Yeah. Rather than just saying, you know, Corey here's a, Powell. Here's our show this week. Yeah, right. And then I go and read a narration. So how much creative control did you have over that? Uh, none. Uh, I, I ju- but what, what the difference was between our show and most other science shows, which I think helped make it work, was that these were conversations with the scientists. They weren't standard reviews. Pardon me. They weren't standard interviews. I didn't go in with a list of questions. I went in with curiosity and my own natural ignorance, which I finally realized it was really beneficial to acknowledge. Uh, Because uh, you're willing to listen to what the other person has to say. Yeah, I, I, I pressed them. If I didn't understand it, and I knew I didn't understand it, I didn't pretend I did. Was there an invention – we're talking about 15 years ago? More than like 20 or 25. Is there an invention or, or rather a discovery that was made that, that you've seen come to fruition? Or is there a discovery that you've seen uh, was not really a discovery, it was a false – it was uh, – what do you call it? A red herring, the wrong way. No, I don't – I can't remember anything like that. But what was interesting about the show was the people I talked, talked with were so on the frontier of science – that they still show clips from our show to teach young scientists That's now. It's still it's still on the on the edge. There, there, I'm sure there were some things that were. Uh, for instance, I remember the first time I was hunting for snakes in the desert in New Mexico with a scientist, and they had been tagged, and we were using a GPS device, which was huge. It was this big thing. Not like what we carry in our pockets yeah. now. And I had to explain repeatedly what a GPS device was because nobody nobody knew what those letters meant in those days. So you would co- you were hunting for snakes? I was hunting for snakes with a scientist in the desert in New Mexico. And we had this big device that was picking up GPS signals to find the snakes. Global positioning system. Well, nobody knew what that was in those days. Now we carry them around in our pockets. And I had to repeatedly explain to the audience what GPS meant. How are the snakes tagged? I have no idea. Were it was a long radio, time ago. I don't radio frequency? Were, were they themselves carrying these tags that were like the size of refrigerators on them? <laughs> no, they had little little baby snake tags. Yeah. And so uh, that we were using, at, the, at first, military satellites to track snakes. Yeah, well, they they had a problem in that they had snakes were very unpopular, especially rattlesnakes, mm. and they would have, <clears throat> pardon me, they would have festivals where people would go out and kill as many rattlesnakes as they could, 
and they were trying to find out how how to protect the snakes from uh, disappearing in that area. Because they have a role in the ecosystem. Well, it seems that pretty much everything has a role in the ecosystem, except you and me. Oh, but we've got to be. <laughs> but, but I do. Uh, just just for the record, I do. Yeah. No, you know what I mean. I mean, we. Has do you know? Did you'd be up on this? Has there has there ever been a species as destructive to the rest of nature as us? Well, the other species. Have you ever, did you cross paths with Chris McKay? I don't think so. He's an astrobiologist. And he took me to this place not far from Death Valley where he says, here's the other species that's capable of changing the climate of an entire planet, blue-green algae. Oh. So blue-green algae uh, uh, made all this oxygen. Right, about two billion years ago. Killed almost everything. But now you and I and other animals rely on it. I, I, I've always wondered if there was an organism that was uh, principally involved in helping the planet go from anaerobic to aerobic uh, so it was, patterns. It was this blue-green algae. And right. so you think it was? Yeah, they, oh, yeah. They, were, yeah they, they were the first uh, photosynthetic cells, and so they were pumping out all that oxygen. Of course, oxygen was a toxic waste product. A, it, 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 it wiped, out, it wiped out most right. of life on Earth. Yeah. So there you go. See, I went to the right guy. You it's did? Just, <laughs> well, and once I'm relating information from another guy, but yeah. it's the same kind of thing that you do where you interview experts who are so passionate about their, um, about their business of science. And that's what came out in those early shows, those Scientific American Frontier shows, was their passion because they were connecting to me as a regular person, not as an interviewer, so that the humanity came out of them. And I, that's what led to the, all the Center for Communicating Science because I thought... I bet we can train people to connect on a human level like this. So you created the the Alan Alda Center, which has been going for 10 years now. Is that right? 10 years, yeah. Uh, so what is that? What was your goal in creating it? My goal was to uh, conquer the world with better communication. <laughs> you're, like, you're like the friendly Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I think we'll all be better off if we communicate with more clarity and more vivid uh, ways of communicating, and uh, and what and what we did was um, develop workshops that we've gone all over the world with about eight different countries, and we they're based on what what I was trying to explain about the Scientific American Frontiers experience, which I was able to do with these scientists because I was an actor because I had studied improvisation, and we we established a connection between us so that the scientists would forget about the camera and concentrate on helping me understand his or her science. So I have done a little bit of acting. And oh, let me, no. uh, let me so Tell me about that. No, no, no. But let me ask you this. My understanding is the most important thing is to try to get a reaction from the other people. Yeah, other that's, but that, I would say that's half of it. The other half, maybe even a more important half, is to react yourself ah, yes. to the other people. Yeah. To let them have an effect on you, mm -hmm. yeah. That's yeah. you got you got it. That's the that's the key. And we have very carefully designed exercises that each one where each one builds on the other. And by the end of a day or two or three, they actually are excited about the idea of 
reaching the inside of another person's head. That is to say, the audience that they're trying to communicate with. How many people go through the Alda Center a year, a week, a day? Well, so far in 10 years, we've done, we've about more than 15,000 people have gone through wow. our workshops. Mm -hmm. Scientists, researchers, physicians, nurses. And so what are the kinds of techniques that you use? Do you, are you actually teaching them like improv techniques? Or? Yeah, basic early improv techniques that that mainly put you in the position of being able to relate better, to do what we were just talking about, to react to the other person, to get in the same mental space together. So you could be doing this communicating almost any subject. You could be communicating about history or journalism or... What's another subject? Economics. Ec yes, economics. Yeah. Why did you choose that. science? Because it grew step by step. It was like an improvisation. It just grew by itself. I was working with scientists on the science show, and I, I, I had the idea. I bet if I taught them imp improvisation, they would they'd connect better and they'd be better communicators. Because here they were doing so well. Hundreds of scientists came on the show. And almost every one of them was open and passionate about their science. But they had me there sometimes drawing it out of them. Well, couldn't we get them to do it, I thought, on their own, with their own passion, their own ability to connect? So that's, that's why it was science. But I hope it does turn into, I hope it's taught in schools, the kids. It would, it would help work against bullying. It can be taught in corporations because when people go through this pro this program, this this workshop, they communicate better with one another. So teamwork works better. Leadership works better. So in improv, you take the person's premise and you you do not say no. If I can use a double negative, right? You're yeah. always positive. Yes, and the follow. Let me add to it. Right. A good example of that is uh, the other player is opposite you, and he says. Wow, look at all that water down there. And you say, that's not water, that's the stage. You've just killed the whole scene. <laughs> <laughs> but if you say yes and, if you say, yeah, look at that water, and you add to it with the and, you say, how about, why don't we jump in and chase that turtle and see where it takes yeah. us? Yeah. And what's great is kids know this. I mean, this is what kids do instinctively. You know, the floor is lava, and you don't say, no, the floor isn't lava. That becomes the whole game. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's so much more fun. the sink is acid. The Coming out of the, the kitchen tap is acid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the floor is lava. But you can walk on the chairs. The chairs are okay in the lava with, and acid. <laughs> well... To your point, this uh, it's quite natural. Bill, you're ready to play with my kids. <laughs> come on, come on down. So, 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 Alan, I have to ask. I'm coming at this from a you know, from a magazine journalism background, where the you know, the framework that we often think about is storytelling. That you want to get the scientists doing storytelling. What you're talking about sounds different. I'm, is it a different way of coming at the same idea, or is there something oh, more no, fundamentally we're, different? We we work on storytelling. We we spend a lot of effort on that, and. When you when you brought up this, the journalistic background, you made me think that one of the surprising things I found about this is that it doesn't only work when you're face to face with the person you're communicating with. It actually helps with writing. I, I think about I use these techniques when I write, and people say, "Gee, the, this uh, reads smoothly," 
And the reason it does is I'm not thinking so as much about what I want to say as I am about how it's landing on the person who's reading it, whoever they are, wherever they are, distant in time and space. But the whole idea of this is me regarding not so much the best way to say what I have to say, but the best way you have of receiving it. Okay, how do you know the best way that I'm going to receive it? You guys on your uh, at the Alda Center, yeah, I see reference to empathy. Yeah, right. Well, so empathy is a rough, in my opinion, empathy is a rough estimate of what you're going through, what you, how you, what your outlook is, what your viewpoint is, specifically what you're feeling. But I would extend it to the whole way you see things. So if I can make an estimate of that especially if we're in the same room and I'm looking at you and I see the semi squint in your eye right now and I see you're paying attention and you're listening for something you can latch on to. So that's important to me to observe that. But if I'm writing for you and I don't know you're going to be reading this or who's going to be reading it, the first sentence I put down is going to put your mind in a certain place. And I have to think about that and I have to think about what, what do you need to come next to accept what I'm saying to you? Or are you going to say, I can't follow this. I would, I have to, I've had to go back and read that sentence three times to figure out what this is about. I'm not going to read anymore. You have a, a wonderful book title, uh, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And, and that's kind of it in a nutshell. It is. And as soon as I, as soon as I you know, looked at that title, I thought, I know exactly what you're talking about. We've all been in that, you know, whether or not you've dealt with scientists in particular, we've all, glazed we've all been in that experience <laughs> of, you know, you're either causing it or receiving it. Do you use that, Bill? Do you, do you when you talk to an audience, are you aware of what they're oh, going man. through? Oh, man. Well, kind of have to. I try to be. Yeah. Okay. Am I successful? You know, I do public talks constantly and the, there's this uh, difficulty you have where the lights are so bright you can't see anyone in the audience. I, I asked them to keep the lights up about 20%. And then the other thing is you focus on people in the front row more than people way in the back. You have right. to continually – I feel you have to continually work with that. But anybody who's done stand-up comedy or improv, yeah. you react to the audience. My goodness, you're listening for the laugh sure. or the groan. <laughs> yes, right. I hear plenty of, Both of them are useful. Uh, yes, I would love to hear a laugh someday. <laughs> it's a goal. Hey, look, you got it right now. <laughs> your, your life is complete. Yeah. So on your on your Alda Center for Communication, how do I, the Alda Center? It's called right. Alda Center for Communication Science. Yeah. yeah, it's a long title. It's good. Authenticity, clarity, empathy. Yeah. Stick around for more science rules after this. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. 
In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. Uh, you have a, a disadvantage over me in that I think you know more than me about science. So you trained as an engineer, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I worked as an, I have a license, man. Okay, well. I'm, <laughs> I've never actually seen it, come to think of it. But. I, I still want to know which bridges you've designed so I can take a walk. Well, the, the one to be careful of is 747s. That's, yeah. Did that's you work on them? Yeah, 747. Oh, my God. I got to <laughs> fix my travel yeah. schedule. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I always but, but, say I was very well supervised. I always add that. Yeah, well, that's good. But <laughs> I, I said as a joke that you have a disadvantage and that you may know more than me. No, I get it. Yeah. I can truthfully say I don't know what you're talking about, but you have to like perhaps to a greater extent, stand in consciously for the audience and say they don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it is to be hoped. But, you know, it's so easy to make mistakes. It's just... Um... Well, so to your, to your point about the audience, everything that we've talked about so far presumes that the audience wants to understand. I think one of the challenges that we see very aggressively right now is that there are certain parts of the public who don't want to understand or who have been sort of trained to be skeptical of, of certain mm -hmm. specific, you know, be skeptical of climate science or to be skeptical, yeah. depending on their background of sort of, of, other, vaccinations. Er of other areas of science. Um, how do you help the scientists get across that, that divide? Because I think we've seen that like, you know, bombarding people with facts doesn't work. No, telling, as a matter of fact, studies have shown the more, the more facts you give them, the more resistance they put up. Studies have shown, fact-based yeah. studies have shown that facts. That's right. Facts are not that, not that helpful. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, to, I don't At least don't to change somebody's study. mind. Well, yeah, I've never believed that study. Well, the mm -hmm. I think the reason is uh, the question of trust. If you trust someone who doesn't use facts or the same set of facts to arrive at a conclusion, you're not going to listen to somebody who comes in from left field and says, I really know. Mm -hmm. And I've got these facts that say so. I think, I think one of the, uh, one of the areas that is useful to work on is the area of trust. And uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who oh. does a lot of work with the climate change, right, climate good. crisis, which I think is a better thing to call it, is uh, very helpful on that. She, when, when she talks to somebody who doesn't, um, doesn't accept the notion of- Human-caused climate. Uh, yeah, human-caused climate change. She doesn't talk about what she disagrees with. She talks f f at first for as long as she can about what they agree on. It could be something ordinary like, doesn't coffee taste bad lately? Mm -hmm. Where do you come from? I come from right next door. What, what, whatever can, connection that can be established to show the other person that you're not coming so much from left field. You're very much like them. Mm -hmm. And you can then trace the path that you took to accept the people who have done research and have arrived at these conclusions. So speaking of that very thing, we have a um, question that was typed into us. Because this is, of course, not only a call-in show, it's also a tweet-in show. A tweet-in show. Wow, this is very advanced. Oh, yes. it's the 21st century. 
Morris or Maris writes, I am nervous about going home for Thanksgiving and talking to my family about climate change. It always emphasized, always is brought up at dinner, but my uncle doesn't think it's real. What should I do to better have a productive conversation with him? Is it hopeless? Maris, Maris. Well, what would you say? They always listen first. Yeah, listening is the most important thing. I've come to the conclusion that the most important part of my trying to communicate something is my listening to the person I'm trying to communicate with. Well, I got to find out where they are. I would abandon all hope of convincing this person in one Thanksgiving meal. Right. But try to establish hope and connection. So I say it takes two years. If you got somebody who believes in astrology or psychics or whatever, the um, first time he or she hears it, they're not going to change their right. mind. Right. And, and, and it depends to a great extent on how deeply embedded they are in their belief system. I interviewed uh, Picciolini on my podcast who has rescued hundreds of people from the skinhead movement. And he sometimes wow. spends years doing it. And he used to be a skinhead himself. And he, he lets them talk and spew garbage at them. White supremacist kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he, he helps them remove themselves. He tells an amazing story. There was a guy he was talking with trying to help him get out of the system. Now, this guy, Picciolini, comes in having had that experience and having, after years of it, of being a recruiter himself, works the other way around to get them out of it, but uses the same techniques. He lets them talk. He lets them, he finds out where their, where their real suffering is and tries to help them feel better about themselves. So he's at lunch with a guy like this who's really hateful. And he says, I got to make a phone call. Picciolini says, I got to make a phone call. One second. He looks up. He's in an unfamiliar town. He looks up the, the phone number of the nearest mosque. Mm -hmm. And he talks to the imam there and he says, I have a Christian who wants to know more about your religion. Can mm -hmm. I bring him over? <laughs> now, the guy doesn't know anything about this, the skinhead. Mm -hmm. He says, let's get in the car. I'm going to take you someplace. And he parks That's in front of him. some trust right there. Yeah. Well, he's already by now been talking to him a long time. He's got some trust. He says... Let's go in. I, I want you to meet this guy. He says, I'm not going in there. I can't. I can't. I'm afraid to go in. I can't go in. He says, come on. You were in the army. You can, you're brave. Huh. I'll, I'll leave with you in two minutes if you, don't, if you can't huh. take it. They go in. They spend hours. The guy tr begins to see the imam as a real person. Huh. A couple of years later, they're meeting for halal food every Friday night. <laughs> oh, my God. That's and amazing. he goes to the mosque. There's and a place that's the best. The yeah, best. Yeah. He, he goes to the mosque and he helps them set up their chairs for the service. He's still a Christian, but he respects the, the people as people. That's, that's, that's how you can reach out to somebody and not try to clobber them with your opposing opinion. So there you go, Maurice. Take him to meet a, a climate scientist. Take your uncle to meet a climate scientist. And hang out for a while. See, that person's a real person. But let us, yeah. this is a call-in show. Right. So, so do you want to call me something? Uh, no, I would like Osmond. We'd let somebody else call you something. <laughs> Osmond, are you out there? Hi, I'm here. Uh, where are you calling from? 
I'm calling from the Las Vegas airport. Oh, that's oh, cool. Excellent. That's exciting. Is there a slot so, machine near you? When, when you put money in the telephone, did anything come out? <laughs> well, this is, uh, this is my cell phone. So not oh, quite okay. Osmond, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I just wanted to introduce myself first. And um, So I'm a uh, second-year physics graduate student in Caltech. And um, I guess whenever I introduce myself to somebody who's um, not in physics or not in science, they typically give me a, uh, wow, you must be a smart guy. And then, you know, that's, I guess that's usually followed up by, um, you know, physics was really difficult for me in high school or college, and it was just a subject that I could never understand. And um, I guess that mindset really disappoints and saddens me because I just think physics is such a cool topic that I wish, like, more people could be um, a part of, like, uh, like uh, and... Um, I guess I was wondering, like, what can we as physicists and, I guess, scientists more broadly, what can we do to um, make our field more welcoming and digestible and accessible to the broader public? Well, I think that, broadly speaking, it's a good idea for scientists to express their passion and their, their enjoyment of the wonder of nature that, that you clearly have. In a more narrow uh, way, I think when you meet these folks who start out with, I, I was never good at math or I stunk at mm -hmm. physics, it might be useful to say to them, well, was there anything that interested you? That you well, Did you learn anything that sounded like fun? And then in, if they have anything like that, no matter how minor it is, you might be able to engage them in some interesting facts about that that they hadn't heard before and ignite their curiosity to have a pleasant experience over physics could be uh, good for both of you uh one of my favorite expressions they say everything happens for a reason and that reason is usually physics <laughs> and so uh is usually chance and chaos and randomness <laughs> So, uh, Osmond, let your passion come through. That's what I tell everybody. Uh, people, science teachers ask me, Bill, why was your – if they feel the show was successful, Bill, why was your show successful? I say, let your – be passionate. Uh, physics is just fantastic. But another thing that I'm very uh, focused on when I did the Science Guy show, Osmond, is what I call discipline and vocabulary. It's very easy in physics – just even the word mass, the difference between weight and mass is like this crazy uh, difficult thing for a lot of people to understand. And what I've always said, if you go out to an asteroid in a spacesuit and you push on the asteroid, the asteroid's not going anywhere. You're going to go somewhere. You're going to get pushed the other way because the asteroid still has mass, even though if you took a bathroom scale out there, it wouldn't say anything. Wouldn't read anything but zero, rather. So, Osmond, be passionate. Well, here, let me ask you. So, Osmond, what, what area of physics are you studying? Yeah, I actually, I worked in dark matter detection. Okay. And, and why did you choose dark <clears throat> matter detection? Well, when I was, like, um, a first-year graduate student and I was reading about the field, um, I, just, I just thought that the problem was so simple. I, it's like, uh, I, like... The basic problem, I guess, if I could state it simply, is that um, galaxies rotate too fast. Based off of the matter that we see in our galaxy and in all other galaxies, they should rotate at a certain velocity, given um, GMM over R squared and MB squared over R. 
Okay, so, uh, so so just I mean, this happens to be a field that I that I follow a bit, and so I've I've spent a lot of time trying to do storytelling in that area, and you know, explaining to people, you know, there's the universe we see, and there's a whole other universe we don't see, and we're realizing the universe we don't see is much bigger, and we're trying to figure out what it is. Isn't it uh, still about ninety five percent? It is un- unknown. Yeah, and Which as soon is as just crazy. Yeah, the the more you can express things at, at the yeah. You know, digging deeper and deeper down into yourself, I feel like that's going to increase the likelihood that that communication is going to click. So you, when when you were telling us about how you got interested in it, you, and you started to get into the details in terms of your your language, uh, did you assume that we would know what that meant? Because I didn't know at all what it meant. Possibly the two other guys here did know. Yeah, I. Um... I guess I assumed that Bill must have known. Well, I'm all about think, V squared uh, over R. Who isn't? <clears throat> but, <laughs> what uh, is V squared I, over so here's R? A, I should have, Alan, this is a cool thing. Yeah. Is, are you going to tell me about V squared over well, R? Well, as best I can. Yeah, good, good. When you're going around in a circle, mm-hmm. your velocity is always changing because you're always changing direction. Mm-hmm. Do you buy that? The, you're, yeah, course, you're continually you're not, you're not, changing you're, direction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I get it. I'm not. Okay. I get, I, mean? I, I get it so far. So that means that you're, something's pulling on you all the time. If you let go of the rope, you're springing a bucket, swinging a bucket of water over your head uh-huh. and you let go of the rope, the bucket goes off, the water goes all over the place. Right. Uh, so there's something pulling on these galaxies that we cannot see that's making them spin in a way different than you would sort of expect just looking at them carefully with a telescope. Right, that, that gets me, that gets me part of the way. Yeah, when which you is go, all you want to do. You only want to get me to the point where I'm ready to ask you more questions. Go for it. Osman, so far do you agree with that explanation? Yeah, that's a wonderful explanation. So are you studying what that force is that's pulling, pulling the bucket in? Yeah. There, should, there is a force that is uh, pulling on our galaxies, making it spin faster. And faster so than you'd expect. Is it faster than faster you'd expect than you'd without expect. some mysterious force, uh, invisible force? And you, are you saying it might not be a force, it might be some combination of elements doing it that, that doesn't represent a force? Well, no, we just think that there's some um, gravitational force that is not being completely accounted for by the matter that we see. Ah. So, you know, the Earth rotates around the sun using the gravitational force between the force between the sun and the Earth. Um, and so, like, similarly, in our galaxy, we can do, like, a similar calculation based off of the matter that we see, um, like the stars and the, the visible gas that we see, we would expect that our galaxy would rotate at a certain velocity. And yet it rotates faster than that. And so that means that we think that there's some matter that we can't see, and it's simply called so, dark matter. So, Osman, along this line, uh, you said you first got interested in this problem when you were in grad, you were first-year grad student. Is that That's correct? Right. Now, yes. when did you really get interested in science? It wasn't when you were 22 years old, was it? Wasn't it more like <laughs> when you were two years old? <laughs> Um, when was it, when did I get interested in science? For most well, people, it's before they're 10 years old. For most people. Yeah, I would say, I would say for me, I wasn't really convinced of my love of science until, um, my 
honors physics class in 11th grade. And what happened in that class so, that got you interested? I, I don't know. There's this one little anecdote that I like to mention that I've like written about in my applications and whatnot about like what got me into physics. And uh, there was this one really simple example that we were doing. It was about like forces on an inclined plane where you have to draw a free body diagram and you draw your vector. An FBD with some vectors. Oh, boy, you guys are drowning me. <laughs> anyway, so you got a wooden block on a, on a tilted slope. Right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, I had to draw a free body diagram and draw the uh, forces that were acting on this body. And um, so, like, we had recently learned about how vectors have X components and Y components and how you can always... Um, <laughs> right, Alan? All the yeah, I know. I was just components. talking about that. No, but here's what I think happened to Osman. You took geometry of triangles mm-hmm. and realized that the force pushing down on the block... Uh, at a right angle to the plane was at the exact triangle angle that you'd expect compared with the force toward the center of the earth, toward straight down. The thing that I really wanted to get across was that, um, like, we resolved the forces in terms of the X direction and the Y direction, but then, like, it turned out that, like, doing this problem in this way is more complicated than it needs to be because it's sitting on this inclined plane, and there's actually an easier way to do the problem. Right? I had thought that the X direction always meant horizontal on the page and the Y direction meant vertical on the page. But then what Mr. Carroll did was that he rotated the page and he defined a new X direction where the X direction lied parallel to the plane and the Y direction lied perpendicular to the plane. So, so Osman, Osman, I'm right there okay. with you. My physics teacher, Mr. Lang, said to me, no, Nye, you're tilted. It's not tilted. You're tilted. <laughs> Thank you for your call, man. This is cool. And uh, remember, in the, when you're in Las Vegas, almost everyone who ever plays a slot machine loses. Yeah. Okay, that's a, that's a very practical up. piece of advice there. <laughs> Carry on, my friend. Thanks for your call, Asmund. So while we're, uh, while we're out there, uh, Hannah. We have H- Hannah. Hannah, are you out there? I am, yes. Hello. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Ipswich, Massachusetts. Ah, Ipswich. And uh, you have a question for Alan. And I us. do. So actually, I um, I heard the last bit of what you guys were talking about, and the the point about um, emotion and science, I think, ties into my question. So um, I have an illness called POTS, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Most people haven't heard of it, which is kind of um, part of my question. So essentially, POTS is a form of dysautonomia, which is an umbrella term for illnesses of the autonomic nervous system. So it's actually a really common illness, and it's predominantly found um, in young women. But um, most people haven't heard of it. And I, in addition to being a patient, have become an advocate um, trying to fight for increased awareness and research and um, a lot of things around it because it's just a very debilitating illness, but um, there aren't many treatment options available right now, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, there hasn't been a lot of focus on it just from broader community across the U.S. and the world, and then also um, specifically from the medical community um, around POTS and all forms of dysautonomia. So what I was hoping to um, ask about today relates to the work that I'm trying to do and and um, an organization that I work with called Dysautonomia International is trying to do, which is to get people more interested um, in POTS and in dysautonomia. And, but because even the name itself is, uh, as you have 
proven sort of the point. Uh, even the name itself is a little confusing and uh, not sort of sound bite So wanted to see what you would recommend in trying to get more people interested in in the research and and all of that when, you know, it's it's hard if the illness doesn't impact them and if they haven't heard about it before. Yeah, that's a that's a real problem, um, and and especially when you're saddled with nomenclature that can put most people off unless they've actually studied it at the bench. Uh, how to reach the masses? I don't think I can give you much advice on because that, in my in my way of looking at it, that communications with an S, and I'm concerned more with communication without the S, which is once you have the means to communicate with people, how do you do it? Uh, but I think my guess is you're on the right track of thinking of referring to it in a whole other way. For instance, you, you have the same problem I have. I'm, I have face blindness. Most people don't know what face blindness is. And it's got a technical name called prosopagnosia. Uh, the interesting thing <laughs> well, is... Oliver Sacks read about that. Yeah, Oliver Sacks had a bad case of it. Um, the interesting thing is, unless I let them know right off the bat, and I have to t- explain to people because I don't, uh, sometimes I could have dinner with somebody for three hours and the next day not know who they are. So what I do is I go all the way in the other direction. I say, I put it in plain terms. I say, I have a brain problem and I can't recognize faces. And it's a real problem, a real brain problem called prosopagnosia. When I hit them with the term, that uh, that says it's, it's real. It makes it real. Makes it real. But first, I say I have a brain problem. So that it's an these are words that they understand, and they know I'm not just saying casually. I know I don't pay attention to faces. <laughs> you know. So let me ask you, uh, Hannah, what are the symptoms mm-hmm. of POTS? So. POTS um, basically means that my autonomic nervous system, so my fight and flight um, and rest and digest system, does not function properly. So it affects basically every system in my body. So um, that means that I basically am severely dizzy all day, every day. Um, I get migraines, digestive issues, um, skin issues, difficulty standing up intolerance to exercise, the list kind of goes on and on. And that is also, I've found it's difficult to um, explain sort of the impact of the illness to people because it's just so kind of far-reaching. And I think a lot of neurological conditions are hard to distill. But um, I have kind of come up with, or the organization, Dysautonomia International, has kind of tried to pull out some more punchy um, facts to try to get people in and, and say it in a way that makes sense to them. So um, like one to three million Americans have POTS, and um, the Mayo Clinic has said that the impact of POTS, um, the disability seen in POTS, is similar to that of COPD and congestive heart failure. So it's really severe, but it's hard to sort of convey to people because they think, oh, I, I was dizzy and I, I've been nauseous and I had a headache, but it's kind of like the extreme version of all of those symptoms all at one time. And also, I think the other component is that it's an invis- largely invisible illness. So I look perfectly fine to most people. Um, but what they don't know is I'm constantly trying to navigate situations and, like, find a chair and something to lean against and try to, you know, shy away from bright lights and all these different things that I need to do in order to operate through the world. So, you know, it's I've tried different ways of explaining it to people, but um, because it's just so 
complex, but also so common, and and I look fine and bright-eyed and chipper to them, um, they just don't sort of fully understand it. So I've tried to sort of pull on the emotions of people and convey sort of the impact. So, so how that, does you know, that work? They, does that work for you? So tell tell a story that's that's got some emotion in it. Right, like a, like yeah. a specific incident in your life yeah. when you were affected. M- maybe when you first r- suffered a, the first set of symptoms. Yeah, I have. Um, I think that was a hard place to get to for me, like to decide to be very open and vulnerable about it. Mm. But that's route that I've gone. So I sustained a concussion when I was 17, and that's how I developed POTS. And um, like 10% of patients also develop POTS from head injury. Mm. And so um, I take people through the journey that was 12 years ago for me now, um, and I take them sort of through the the way it's impacted my life. At one point, I um, was uh, had to use a wheelchair. I would had graduated college, but um, was not able to work. I had to be, have a 24-hour caretaker. Couldn't stand up alone in the shower. Couldn't walk stairs. Um, it was just a you know a very difficult time. But I think the thing is that people only see me on the days or years or months when I'm doing a little bit better. Yeah, I think that like that that personal like emotional pull is what gets people interested in being like, okay, why did she have so much trouble? Like, let me try to look more into the um, illness itself. Well, I think that you have what it takes to communicate uh, the, the, the story. I would suggest you, in the way you told your story to us, that you just reverse everything. Don't don't uh, t- start when you talk about it to to a crowd trying to get raise money or raise interest to get research started. I would start with the personal story, and then g- get to how many other people it affects. Maybe somebody else's story. Save for the end what you started with, which was what the acronym stands for. The, one of the problems is the acronym is an easy word. It's a u- word in common usage. Pots. But when you say what POT stands for, it completely submerges us in jargon. So I right. maybe I, I would find a way to keep that term useful to scientists, but find a, a description of it that we can comprehend. That's great advice. Okay. Is this your business? <laughs> I spent most of my life doing this oh, lately. That's really good. That's really good. You <laughs> well, know, you're onto you. something, I think, Mr. Alda. <laughs> hey, that's Anna, bo- that's a great call. I'm sorry, of course, about your condition, but because of your passion, uh, I think you're going to get in, enlist people and make headway on this. Absolutely. Carry on. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling. Science Rules will be right back. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. We actually have another caller on the line. Wow. Chris, are you there? I am here. And where is there? Where are you (laughs) calling from? I'm calling from Oakland, California. Ah, a fine place, Bay Area. 
I wanted to call. Um, so I teach improv and I have for 20 years and I've moved into teaching people uh, empathy and communication through improv. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in communicating with people about is uh, neurodiversity, mental health issues. And uh, I know you were just speaking to a caller about um, health issues and how to communicate with those with with people about that. But in general, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in talking, um, helping people understand how people with uh, mental health issues have different frames of reference for experiencing the world to an extent. Um, it's hard to understand if somebody's experience is so different from you, um, their, their need. Could you, could you give, give us a, a kind of concrete example of? Yes. Um, well, I, uh, so I have, I have ADHD. I'm uh, bipolar. Um, these are some of the experiences that I've uh, certainly lived through. Uh, and and uh, experience the world through. Let me ask you this. Do you feel angry uh, for a few minutes and then you feel happy for a few minutes? Is it that sort of thing? Um, when I think oh, about no. improv, uh, okay. What sort of thing is it? Then? No. Oh, well, okay. So, um, I mean, in terms of just things like bi bi bipolar disorder, I mean, it is something that's uh, uh, still being understood. Um, th there certainly are manic swings. I, uh, there are certainly depressive swings, um, but uh, there's also just you're somewhere in the middle. It's such a mix. You're, it's such a flowing river of emotion and, and experience. Hang, hang for, on. So um, you feel you and I feel the same emotions, right? I'm right. I'm, I'm uh, hypothesizing that I do not have very much attention deficit. I have some, of course. What? Of course. Right. Bill, but, Bill, 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 but. But uh, we, you and I experience the same emotions, but my understanding is you experience them more intense. Is it rather, is it that you experience them more intensely and you experience these <laughs> changes faster than other people? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, but I think you're touching on some of the more well-known aspects of those things, you know, the, the lack of attention. Uh, so much of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is just anxiety. You go to a, a restaurant and you look at a menu and you just get overwhelmed by the visual information. ADHD tends to be just a hypersensitivity and you're just overwhelmed by, uh, by the sort of information you're receiving from the world around you. I think that what you're saying now is a, yes. an, a real example of why you called us, which is helping Bill understand <laughs> the the varieties of this experience of this uh, this uh, yeah. condition you have and you it sounds like you want to be able to talk to people the way you're talking to bill and help them understand <laughs> what you're going through and not be hitchhiked and not be not hitchhiked. hijacked hijacked thank you <laughs> thank you not be hijacked by stereotypes or the obvious uh, surface features of it Absolutely. When I was uh, seven, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And this was in the 1980s. People didn't know what it was. I had teachers that would argue with me and say that it wasn't real, mm. that my problems weren't real. And I don't want other people to have to have to argue that vehemently, especially children. I want them to be able to advocate for themselves a little bit better. It's so interesting. It's it's very much like what I go through in a very in a very minor way, at getting people mm -hmm. to understand I have face blindness. But but I found a way, a formula to do it. So maybe what you can help your 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 
attendees at your workshops do is improvise situations where your partner is mm-hmm. totally dense, doesn't want to hear the details, mm-hmm. and wants to say things like, "Yeah, I know what that's like. I have it. I, I had. I knew somebody who had that, and it was nothing." Or, "Hey, you'll you'll outgrow mm, it, you yes. know, and give you give the uh, the person who's trying to explain a real problem to play the game in such a way that they overcome the uh, the density and the objections. That might be a fun exercise for you to do in, in an improv workshop. Oh, I really like that. Well, carry on. Well, thank you. Carry well, on. Both of you ins- have inspired me in this way, so I, I really do appreciate well, it. Well, thank you. Thanks for well, your that's call. that's great. Improv is so powerful. It's just amazing. And it's, 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 it's really... What's that? What's that? That's very powerful. It's something very powerful. It's the sound of lightning. It's it's, (laughs) it's thunder, obviously, but it's uh, created by lightning, uh, indicating to me that it's time for our lightning round. Oh, good. You weren't warned about the lightning round? No, I wasn't. I wasn't warned about that thing that you make noise with either. A a certain element of surprise is always good for drying out, you know, authentic responses. (laughs) (laughs) This is one we use a lot. What? (laughs) <laughs> especially on our physics shows so uh in the lightning round we ask you to give a quick answer right you ask the guest among which you are whom we ask today. a quick question you speak your mind right you go for it Corey. okay uh indulge us here what is your favorite episode of mash do you have a favorite episode i don't have a favorite episode i love the dreams one but that that always comes to mind. But it's not my favorite because I th- there's about twelve that are my favorite. It's like yeah, trying to choose among your children. Yeah, then you got people expect you to not like the other shows. Do you think that Michael Faraday really said, "Madam, of what use is a newborn babe?" Uh, probably. Oh, good. But he may not have been the first one to say it. What is the most misunderstood idea in science, or your experience of scientists? The most misunderstood idea, I think, is that science is just another opinion, which is something that has become very popular lately. That, I mean, when you say, do you believe in science, it's an example of it. What idea in science would you like to understand better? Oh, that's a question that I ask on my own podcast. That's, 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 That's one of what I say, what would you really like to understand. Okay, now it's, now you're in the hot seat. Yeah. I I do really I think most of all want to understand how our species, why our species is so capable of both nurture and torture. And almost everybody is capable of that, of both of those under the right circumstances. Well, I think humans are probably extinction-proof, as the saying goes, but— You think humans are? Yeah, but how many of us are going to get through to 2120, for example? Well, what do you think? I often ask that at the dinner table. How long do you think the species will last? Oh, and we got several hundred thousand more years. You think we're going to be that, much. Hard, that hard want, to get rid of? It's just, not really much. Well, but it's a lot more than a decade, say. <laughs> 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 and the reason is I think things are going to get— uh, they're gonna things are gonna get troublingly difficult with climate change over the next fifty years or so. Then, as we raise the standard of living of women and girls, the uh, rate that humans are reproducing themselves will decrease to the point where a human population starts to decrease. There'll be more resources for everybody. The world will become more equitable. 
so that in 100 years, people will be crazily optimistic. We'll be getting her done. That's what I think. Well, that's a good scenario. And you make me think that you, I bet you'd enjoyed listening to uh, an episode on uh, Clear and Vivid, my podcast, that I'm really proud of, which is a dozen women from three generations in science talking about what's changed, what hasn't changed, and what hasn't changed in, in, in what hasn't changed, what can we do about it? And it's, it's very moving to listen to, to, to take a listen. When you talked about women and girls. Vivid. The Clear and Vivid podcast, it's featuring Alan Alda, I believe. Yeah, it's me talking to really interesting people from every different kind of field. Which brings us to the last lightning round question. I can't. I've, I've really destroyed the lightning part of this. No, no. You no, know what? It, it, no, the, the destruction's on us. What is, from all of your experience, what is one thing that everybody should know about communication? Listen. That, now that's lightning. Right there. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Science Rules to talk about the importance of communication for everyone. Just remember, when it comes to the clear communication part of our universe, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials, the social media that the kids use. For when to call into the show, I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, Many of you may remember this technology. Give us a call at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell and Corey S. Powell right here. Yeah. With extra production from Lisa Wang, who also screens your phone calls. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme music and all. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, science rules. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.